0: Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mekaitis.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 833 with Andres Leres. Andres has some outstanding wisdom when it comes to how our decisions really made and thusly, how can we influence folks? Well, so you'll learn one, how to tap into the hidden driver behind most decisions Two, the critical steps that set you up for greater influence. And three, what to say when you're losing the other person. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, please visit us over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep833 and see some of our other goodies like the Gold Nugget email list, which summarizes the actionable wisdom from Andres and everybody else on demand. That's the Gold Nuggets that also at awesomemattyourjob.com. Now, here's a little bit about Andres. Andres Laris has been the managing partner and CEO of Shapiro Negotiations Institute since 2017. Prior to this role, Andres served various roles, including Chief Innovation Officer, where he led the company's professional development of technology and content. For over a decade, Andres has advised professional sports teams in the NBA, NFL, MLB, and NHL on contract negotiations, trades, and other critical negotiations. He has been featured in publications including HBR, Forbes, CNBC, Entrepreneur, and Sports Business Journal. Andres guest lectures at conferences and institutions around the world and teaches a course on negotiations at Johns Hopkins University. Now, here's Andres. Andres, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Well, I'm so excited to hear your insights on persuasion. Could you kick us off with a particularly striking, fascinating, mind-blowing, counterintuitive discovery you've made in this domain? No pressure.
2: Yeah, no pressure, huh? So uh, yeah, this is like, if I give this up and there's no really reason to listen to the rest of the podcast.
1: Keep it short. But, yeah. uh, <laughs>
2: exactly. So I mean, we can, you know, people will be done in one minute. And uh, so there is one thing that really struck me. So when we got into this, so I've been doing this for about 12 years now and pretty early on, the thing that struck me and sticks with me is, uh, is essentially kind of a quote that we use in our trainings that has been around really since Aristotle. He was teaching this many years ago and perhaps not enough people listen, but it's that People make decisions emotionally, and then they justify them rationally. Mm -hmm. And that has really stuck with me. We have done an enormous amount of research that indicates that is definitely the case all over the world, regardless of culture and language and and everything else. But so that really has stuck with me. So that's it. We're done. We can pack up and go.
1: (laughs) Well. I really want to dig into that, so i I've heard that, and that seems sensible. Can you unpack that with some of your your research and and some examples of of what that really sounds like in the internal dialogue and practice?
2: yeah, and so it really where does it come from and it really what it comes from is heuristics, all the shortcuts in our brain that we take because we have to right, and so there's a lot of this is covered in, in one of the books that i have enjoyed and has impacted me the most ever is thinking fast and slow and no surprise, uh, it's a, a Nobel Prize winner that wrote it, but another that would have won one if he was around. But it is one of those things that it's it, because we have so much that we have to compute in our brains in a short period of time, we, we really essentially are struggling and taking as many shortcuts as we can. So what does that look like? So I'll give you an example that we often talk about. So this is a study done many years ago. And actually, you know what? There's a couple. So the best one, I'll shift gears here and convince myself of another one. So uh, here's a perfect example of a shortcut and how emotions drive things. So many years ago, there was a study done at Harvard, and it was at a at a library. Where essentially, folks didn't really what realize what was going on, but it was a study that people were in a copy machine, aligned to the copy machine. So again, just the the context here, aligned to the copy machine, you really are doing nothing else but making copies. Well, in this study, they basically had. Actors approach real people and ask three different ways in order to button a line. So the first was, can I go in front of you? And so that was it. That was the first thing they asked. The second one, they said, can I go in front of you because I'm in a hurry? And the third one, they said, can I go in front of you because I'm in a hurry? I need to make a lot of copies, right? So that's the three. So you're asking someone. So now the percentages here will really tell you how long ago this was. I don't think they would stand up to time. But in the first example, basically just asking to go in front of you, 60% of people approved.
1: Oh, that's so nice of them.
2: <laughs> I know. And so that's, that's how I know this was done, not, not done recently. In the second, just they literally said, because I need to make copies, and 93% of people let them in front. And then there's kind of a reason that was a little bit more reasonable, which would be the fact that I need to make, co- I need to make a lot of copies in addition to them in a hurry. It went up only to 94%. -hmm. So what's happening there, right? Just simply the word because and someone sharing a reason with you is enough. It's compelling enough for your brain to think, oh, yeah, there's probably a good reason and go. Even the actual reason itself rarely even matters that much. Now, you can't always do this and there's different circumstances. will provide different results. But similar studies have been done all over the place and with adjustments of all types. And there's always that aspect where our brain is taking that shortcut and it almost doesn't matter what comes after the word because, I hear because, there must be a reason, it must be good, go ahead. And so that is an example, and there's millions of them where people make emotional decisions. And I'll give you one more that I particularly enjoy. This has been done with jelly beans or things like that. You imagine this big jelly bean, one of those where if you pick the number of jelly beans in a container, you get a a prize, imagine that. Mm -hmm. And so they said, okay, you have a choice. In this one, there's 10 jelly beans and one is red. And if you pick the red one, so one in 10 chance, you will win $100. In another one, they say, look, in this case, there's 100 jelly beans. Eight of them are red. If you pick a red one, you'll get $100. Which would you choose? Now, most people, more than 50%, again, all over the world, will choose the second. Hmm. Now, why do they choose the second? The first one has a 10% chance. The second one is an 8% chance, 8 out of 100 versus 1 out of 10. But what happens is, well, one is a denominator issue where the math maybe gets a little bit more complicated for folks in the moment. But the second is, emotionally, they feel like they have eight cracks of that red jelly bean to make the money rather than the one crack. And so that feels more important than the denominator, how many jelly beans there are and so we pick it. So those are two very different examples of of that at play.
1: All right. So now I'm thinking about counterexamples just to put this to the test. Yep. I think I've I've often been in a, a situation where I do exactly that. I want something or I don't want something. I just like something. I don't like something, and then I find a way just to to rationalize it afterwards. Sometimes what's interesting is like I find that I fail. Like I, I for example, when I saw it took me a long time with the iPad. I said okay. I've had some good experiences with Apple products, the iPhone, the iMac, the MacBook Pro, like all three of them. I really see their place in my life, but for the longest time, the iPad is just like I don't see how I need this. I have got a laptop which can do just about all of those things and more and so I think it I went for years without an iPad, friends, roommates, others mm-hmm. had iPads, loved them, and I kept looking at it, thinking I wanted it, but it just didn't click for the longest of times, I guess I was not able to marshal the logical reasons until I had just enough experiences of being on a plane and not being able to open up <laughs> my, my laptop all the way to actually be able to view it and sit it on the thing with, cause I'm a tall guy and try to get a, a comfortable angle. And then I thought, well, okay, and then I think there were some lower priced options. It's like I don't need the newest one, and I got a birthday coming up, so the things all kind of aligned. But I, but I found that intriguing. That and you tell me, am I abnormal, or or is there a certain threshold that has to be met here? Is that like I can have desire, but be unable to bring enough logical justification, even though I'm so good, I think, at rationalizing and justifying a lot of things in order to get me to do the thing that I want or don't want. What's going on in, in the second layer here? So
2: when I hear that story, my first reaction is it was the emotion that drove you, right? So what did. I hear in that story was it wasn't until I was cramped like this in a, an airplane yeah. where I was thinking, what am I doing here? I'm on this four hour flight across the country and I can't do anything. It's frustrating whether, you know, you want to watch Netflix and just relax or you want to get some work done. And that's the moment where kind of how you felt in that moment was the true compelling emotion. Okay. You get the iPad, right. That's in my opinion, that's part of what happened there because that's really what drives it. And then you can justify, okay, well, iPad is the best because I'm an Apple user and it's going to sink in very well or whatever. Then the logic will kick in and work through all the details. But that first desire or that shift from desire to actually doing it, I think that probably happened on an airplane. you just said, enough is enough. I need this thing.
1: That is interesting. I guess I thought when the iPad was first unveiled, I had some desire like, ooh, that looks cool and shiny. I like it. I want it. I was like, but I don't really need it. Where does it fit into anything? So I guess maybe in in your model, what's happening here is I have insufficient desire or until I had a new emotional experience of I'm very uncomfortable in the seat and want to have more comfort in the seat.
2: So it's interesting because I think that is a non-money version of what we often see, which is that folks will want, so if there's something that you want, that's got some strength. But avoiding something you don't want has even more strength. And that happens with money, right? So if you say someone $100 for sure versus 50% chance to win 200 or zero, most people will pick 100. Because what happens is if they miss out, and then it happens even more strongly if it's a loss. And so I think what's happening there is the fact that, hey, this thing's shiny, I really want this thing, that's compelling. But the level of how compelling it is when you actually then face a negative emotion, like, this is really frustrating, and I could get rid of this frustration if I bought a tablet, and that tablet happens to be an iPad. I think that's the one that's going to be more compelling, which is why that happened. And so when he just nice and shiny, that's compelling, but it's typically not as powerful as the other.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And then I'm curious about business-to-business type decisions. Like I think, in a way, at least, if you are a, a director at a publicly traded corporation, for example, you have a legal obligation to look out for the the shareholders best interests. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like there are some solutions that it's like, oh, this should produce ROI. So in some ways, like we're really supposed to quote unquote, think extra super duper logically about the financial logical consequences of a thing. Are are, our emotions still running the show here too? So
2: yes, but I think there's some things that remove some of that, right? So for example, if you've got a decision that takes a long time, so the longer you put something through a decision-making process, and the more people involved, although groupthink does happen, but more people, more time, there's a bunch of these variables that will do that, right? So in the moment, you know, if you think about, uh, let's move to a totally different world, let's go to a grocery store, right? And that's another example, in the grocery store, why is it that there's gum and snacks while you wait to pay? Right. So if you put, you know, those gum and snacks are also in another aisle, but they're Mm -hmm. bought significantly less. But in that moment where you're just waiting and you're sitting around, it's going to take three more minutes for, which feels like 15 when you're waiting for the next person to pay, you make this kind of emotional decision of like, oh yeah, this is what I need. Right. And so what happens is I think that's kind of taking advantage of that. Now, if, over time, if you saw that in the aisle, you wouldn't have got that piece of gum or you wouldn't have gotten that candy bar. And so, and the same thing would occur with corporate decisions, right? If you're a director at a company, if you make a decision over a couple of weeks, it's less and less uh, emotional. Now, emotions still play. I remember kind of spying this stat, which still shocks me to this day, that the first and last, uh, as far as like those two typically in an RFP type process where it's a little bit formal... Or in an in fully informal kind of bidding process, the first and last are selected more than 50% of the time. Wow. Even when there's more than four or five vendors. So it's imbalanced in the first and last. And again, that's another way where we're emotional beings and the first sets the tone. The last is the one we're most likely to remember. And so if the first sets the tone and others don't necessarily stack up to it or they say some things that are unique, or the last does something that's impressive in any way, they'll last with us and that you pick them. And it's it's unbelievable that you may not be picking the best partner for your company. You're literally picking who went first or last potentially. And even worse, we don't know it. Even if we do know, we often can't do anything about it. Now, of course, there are ways. So writing things down, decision making processes, taking time to digest and think through it, creating a criteria, you know, there's things you can do. But it is amazing how, Emotional, we are as beings.
1: Well, that is so shocking and striking. I almost feel the need to construct a counter narrative that explains it, such as well. The first person, you know, they they really got their act together. They got some hustle. That that is a high performing organization that moves quickly, and that's an advantage. So they deserve stuff. And the last folks, boy, they really they really put some thought into this. They, they they took their time. They they did their research and their homework and their preparation, and so. The first and the last, I was may disproportionately in fact be superior potential partners. I might be stretching here, but that's that's where I come to go.
2: <laughs> yeah, in the cases where there's no choice, I think we see it happen too. But it happens, I mean, just about everywhere. So another one is, it's, you know, called the winner's curse often. So if you think of like a bidding system, typically the person and this happens in sports, we do a lot of work in sports. And if you think of an athlete goes to a team, oftentimes, and this happens in baseball, perhaps more than any other sport, it's okay. You're willing to pay $10 million a year for 10 years. I'm willing to pay more. And you're willing to pay more. And you go back and forth and find the person that wins is essentially cursed because they win by definition by overpaying for that player. Mm-hmm. And so again, that's typically emotional. When we've been in the trenches with teams that is because they get caught up in the deal making or because it is a blurriness. It is an emotional piece. Because I would say 99.9% of the time, when we meet with the teams and we're kind of involved in these kind of decisions, they have written down a number as a walk away that's lower than they end up paying. So they end up going well above what they said they would, what they think is reasonable. And so that is where the justification comes in. I, I am going over, but things have changed. Fill in the blank. Now, of course, there are times when things have actually changed. The market is, you know, maybe you start a negotiation early in free agency, and five other players get signed, and now the market's moved up. That, of course, is a possibility, but very, you know, very rarely is that the reason that's happening. It's just it's deal fever. We're in it. We spend so much time, and there's a sunk cost fallacy. Like, right, if I've spent this much time on it. It's only this much more. And that's where the justification comes in. And, and really, it becomes more emotional rather than if you were objective, you'd say, look, the max I was going to pay this player was 10 years, 10 million a year. And it's better for me not to do that than it is to pay more. We just very rarely come across that.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Andres, we're having so much fun jumping all around the psychological world here. Maybe let's get to the, the fundamentals here. Your book, Persuade, The Four-Step Process to Influence People and Decisions. We've already got some some tasty tidbits from it, but what would you say is the core message thesis, big idea of this one?
2: That's a it's a four-step process to influencing others.
1: All right. Just like you said.
2: <laughs> exactly. That's it. Build credibility, engage emotion, demonstrate logic, facilitate action. So really it's building credibility. That's people will not care if they're not deemed credible. Think of a Toothpaste commercial, right? Every toothpaste commercial has someone who either is or looks like a dentist. That's because they don't have credibility without the dental looking attire. And so that is, you know, that's an example than a crude one, but it is an example. Then engage emotion. As I talked about, people make decisions emotionally and then they justify them rationally. Then comes demonstrate logic. Now, of course, there is a time and a place for logic. So it isn't that you just never do it, it's that you typically and most compellingly do it after you've built credibility and engaged emotion. And then finally, the fourth is facilitate action, which is if you can think of all the situations where you say, is this a good idea? And your teammate says, yes, or your colleague says, yes. Okay, are we going to move forward? Yes, we are. And then all of a sudden you check in two weeks later and nothing has happened. I think just about everyone can relate to that. And so facilitate action is about creating an environment where it's as likely as possible that the behavior that you want to be taken will be taken.
1: Hmm. All right. Well, sounds good to me. Lay it on us then. Let's say we want to do some great persuading. Yep. Can you maybe give us some example demonstrations for how you'd step through each of these pieces from building the credibility to engaging the emotion to demonstrating logic and to facilitating action?
2: Yeah. So I just let's try to pick something that potentially anyone can relate to. So you're working with a colleague at work. So potentially, let's say they're not necessarily someone above you or below you, they're kind of a lateral position. So hopefully this is generic enough that it works for everyone. So the first thing is you want to think about, okay, do I have credibility with this person? I'm trying to convince Pete to do something. Okay. So how am I going to do it? Well, first is, does Pete know who I am? Does he think that I've got good ideas? What is this perception of me? And so let's assume that it's a neutral perception, met a few times and not much there. So the first thing I would think about how do I build credibility? So build credibility might be simple things. So spending time with someone, Unless you actively do something very negative, generally spending time with someone helps you to build rapport, trust, and credibility. But also you could give yourself a few things. So when you bump into Pete and there's an opportunity to say, hey, I thought of you the other day. I mean, when I read this article, I'll send it to you, to, by, you know, by end of day tomorrow. That'd be an example of, of manufacturing an opportunity where you, in this case, you should genuinely have thought about the person and think that that article might make sense. But then I sent it to Pete in the timeline that I said I would. Well, now you're starting to create not only that connection based on thinking of the person, but also a sense of reliability. I said I would do something by the day tomorrow, and I did. So you can do a few of those things, and you start to get the ball rolling. And of course, anytime you provide value, you write good ideas, things they can implement at work, anything that is, is important and valuable to the other party would help build credibility. Mm-hmm. So then comes emotion. So let's say in this case, you're working on a project together. And again, to pick an example that most people could relate to, Pete has this as a priority seven, and I have this as a priority two. And so my job is to sort of convince you to bring it up to maybe not two, but certainly higher than seven. Well, then you think, of okay, what's the emotion I want to trigger? So let's pick two examples. Well, one might be achievement. Pete, this is one of the reasons I asked you in particular to kind of be involved in this project is because I know that this is going to get a lot of attention from the senior leadership team. It's a really important project. So if we were to do this, this was done very well. But again, it has to be true. This is genuine. If it's disingenuous, then please don't use the model. But if you go back to that, okay, so... If that's the case, then there's a sense of achievement, doing a good job in this, and that includes timely, but also high quality, a sense of achievement that it'll be better for everyone, right? And so uh, that could be an example. And another one could be fear, the other way. I'm a little bit worried, Pete, that we're a little behind schedule. Being behind schedule right now is not a big deal, but if we were to end up being late, I think this could be a disaster for both of us. I saw one of our other colleagues late uh, two months ago on a similar project And they ended up getting fill in the blank, right? Is whatever the repercussion would be. So that'd be example of fear or achievement. There's a lot of them. Then the next would be demonstrating logic, right? So there, what is the logic you could say? So one of the things that I've found is because we're currently meeting once every two weeks, we're forgetting by the time we actually get to the next meeting, we're forgetting what we covered. So I think if we, rather than doing once every two weeks, and this would take eight weeks to get these meetings, if we were to meet a couple of times in one week, I actually think we could pump it out faster, so rather than our estimation of 20 hours total, we could probably do it in 10 or 15. Would you be open to considering something like that and we just get it done faster for both our sakes? So something like that might be a logically compelling argument that, hey, I'm gonna save you time and more efficient and get the software plate faster so you can get to other priorities. And then finally, facilitate action might be to provide them with options. So providing with options could say, you know, so two ideas that I have are, one, do you want me to do this piece and you do that piece? Or would you prefer the other way around? I focus on this part, and you focus on that part. What would you prefer? And you would ideally be offering a set of options and you maybe might throw in a third that you're willing to accept any of them. So they're all acceptable to you, but that way the person feels like and, and do in fact have some control over the result. Because we certainly know that when you come up to, with a collaborative solution, they're more likely to be committed than rather than if I say, hey Pete, here's what I need you to do. And here's what I need you done by, please go and execute and come back to me when you're done. Mm-hmm. So that would be a bit of a generic example, but hopefully it gives you some sense of how those four phases would come into play.
1: I appreciate that. Yes. Well, now could you maybe give us a couple of top do's and don'ts within each of those domains? So when it comes to building credibility, for example, what are some great things we can do versus not do? In your book, you've got a, f- a few sections, the influencer's toolbox. I love toolboxes. So <laughs> if there's anything that's leaping to mind that's extra handy, lay it on us.
2: Yeah. So do's it don't. So for credibility, some of the don't is do not skip this step. This is potentially the most important step. If you think of kind of your life right now and how much you get bombarded with messaging, whether it's emails at work or calls and spam calls and your fam, all the stuff that's going on, it's easier to just ignore something than it is to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So credibility is the thing that stops you from ignoring it, right? It's what cuts through and it helps to cut through the clutter, if you will. And so I think I see this a lot in, you know, we'll take away a little bit from kind of the, the job piece and I'll go to sales for a second. This is a perfect example in sales. Often those people rush through to get the sale and they skip the personal, the credibility building, the trust building, they get right to the sale. And so what happens is, well, you've missed that first part that even allows you to get there right? And so people just don't care, right? You're just selling me something and I don't want to be sold to. I I want to be part of the buying process. So the credibility piece is the don't is don't skip it. It can be easy. And oftentimes you wonder how important is this? Well, it's really important for emotion as far as do's and don'ts. So it's got to be, I think the don't again would be, it has to be genuine. And so really the emotion is about thinking about, okay, what is uh, so here, for example, fear and when people hear fear and scarcity, I'll give you an example of a don't would be although it can work, it's sleazy and doesn't work long term. That's why you see, you know, in, in at commercials late at night, this deal is only good for the next 15 minutes. If you call now, you get three easy payments rather than four easy payments, right? And so it's that concept of, now the thing is where most of us are smart enough to know that once this commercial ends this commercial will run again tomorrow night and the next night and the next mm-hmm. night it 's a fake exploding deadline, and so I think there when you think of, of fear when you 're thinking of you know scarce any of those things especially that are negative be it 's got to be genuine right in that example, I gave the consequence it has to be a real consequence that actually you saw someone face because uh, your credibility will be lost if it 's if it 's made up and so That's it's a don't again in emotion. I mean, for logic, I think do tell stories. The best way to communicate evidence, logic, data. Oftentimes, we want to do in this big chart and graph, and that is helpful and supportive for visual learners. But then take the extra step to tell a compelling story of how that potentially helped another client, or why you should get a raise, or whatever it is. But you you know, if you can tell a, a short and compel your story to communicate the same message as what well, you could just be sharing in another way, you will be more effective in the former. And then finally facilitate action. I would say some dues or consider providing options uh, for sure. And then the, well, the one other thing is consider a safety net. So safety net meaning, you know, and again, I'll go to the crude late night infomercials because they use a lot of psychological warfare on uh, all, of, all of us, but it's the money back guarantee. And the concept of that is how many people actually buy that product and then send it back? Very, very, very small number of people in almost all cases. But just the mere fact that if we purchase it and we're not satisfied, we could then send it back. That makes us more comfortable to purchase it in the first place. So an example in business, you know, certainly sometimes there can be a gar- warranties of some sort. As an example of, you know, in almost any product that's sold in the B2B space or B2C space. But just if you can remove some of the risk for another party, you will make it more likely that they move forward.
1: Okay. Thank you. Well, I also wanted to get your take on some body language pieces. Are there any really reliable cues or indicators that we can feel somewhat confident about when we notice and what do they mean
2: so what i'd like to do is slightly tweak that if you're okay with this and say okay. the thing that you can count on is to only make decisions when you're getting a consistent message from the body language okay so that's the only thing that's reliable what do i mean by that if i cross my arms like this while we're having a conversation technically that is not the best sign but on its own it means nothing It happens to be particularly cold in this room. And so that could be just literally a physical response to that being cold. But now let's take me crossing my arms like this, turning a little bit away from you so I'm actually facing another direction. And potentially, let's say I slow down my smiling and now start having facial expressions that are more neutral or potentially negative. Then you can really start to read into that. That's kind of a pattern at that point. And so what you want to see is consistency with the tone what's being said in the body language. And if there's, if there are more than one, typically two or three that tend to be negative, you want to change what you're saying, change the environment, ask a different question, take a different approach, whatever it may be. But I would say, you know, so the do's and don'ts, the do's is look for consistency, look for multiple things that point in the same direction, negative or positive. You know, lots of smiling, open hands, leaning in would be the positive, crossing arms, turning away, Less smiling would be the negative ones, but you want those to be consistent and multiple if you're going to read anything into it.
1: Okay, and so in terms of a real-time adjustment, we might make. What are some of the options there? So
2: there's two of the most common. One is kind of calling out. Oh, did I say something that? Do you have any questions? Did I say something that maybe was was off a little bit? And so, in my opinion, lots of people recommend that. I think that can, I think that can be is something that is doable, but that can take a lot of confidence. Right? It's almost like calling someone out on it. Oh mm-hmm. no, you know, it can be a little bit. So, but that is something that people do. But generally I would say is try to ask a question or try to change where your conversation's headed. So I'll give you an example, potentially if this would have happen, Let's say in an interview, let's say you're in an interview for a job. And so you see that someone's crossed leg turns away and, and starts, you know, all of a sudden you see eyebrows change a little bit. It's a little more negative. Then you might, whatever you're saying, you might pause, for, you know, pa- or try to finish it kind of rather, rather quickly. And then say, now, Pete, I'd love to tell you more about that, but I did have a couple of questions for, if you don't mind, is this a good place I can ask you something and then say, okay, tell me more about and fill the blank of questions you had ready. So you were saying something or the opposite. If you're asking a lot of questions and the person's kind of doing those negative things together, they may be signaling to you the fact that, you know what, you're kind of done asking questions. Now it's my turn. I want to get to know you and it's been two one way. So essentially what you're reading is whatever you're saying or doing in the moment, they're not particularly appreciating. So any pivot from that and then see how the body language is reacting, right? After another minute or two, are you still seeing that negative body language? One other thing I would say, and this gets into NLP and things that are a little bit less science-based or, you know, they're a little bit more controversial, but there definitely is a growing evidence that you can do something that is called mirroring, which would be to try to also move towards the body language that is more positive and they'll kind of follow you. Mm -hmm. so you know for example if i notice that you're you know you're uh you're tilted a little bit this way and you're leaning back a little bit i would first mirror so i would tilt a little bit same way i would try to speak at the same pace as you are so whether it's a lot faster and i'm going really really fast or slower and then what i would do is over time over the next few minutes i would start to kind of tilt my head this way i would start to lean in i would start to open my my body language And so what you can do is you can also shift that way. So not only what you're saying and the tone of your delivery, but if you actually mirror their body language, that's potentially negative in particular in this case, and then start to move towards more positive body language, they should
1: follow you. Okay, good deal. Thank you. Well, now, could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
2: I think there's a few that come to mind. So one I particularly like that one of our facilitators often says was, much is lost for the want of asking. Mm-hmm. so to remind us that uh, if you don't ask for it, you can't get it. You don't always get what you ask for, but if you don't ask, you don't get it. I think there's another one that I, often is attributed to Epictetus. I'm not sure if uh, necessarily it was in fact him or not, but it's like God gave us two ears and one mouth so we can listen twice as much as we speak. I think that is a good reminder and, and just the value of listening, asking questions and listening. So I like those. And there's one more Harry Truman, I believe, is a credit to this, but it's It's what you learn after you know it all that really counts. And I think that one's brilliant. So those are three that come to mind. You asked for one, I gave you three, I hope that's okay.
1: That's good, thank you. And could you share a favorite study or experiment or bit of research?
2: Yeah, so I I would hate to kind of duplicate, but I'd probably go back to the copier study, the jelly bean study, some of these. Those were the originals when they were done the first time. And I find it particularly interesting that it was done 20, 30, 40 years ago in some of these cases. And so much has changed in the world, but they continue to be, when they're redone and adjusted, they continue to have the same results. So all of those reminding us of human nature and and how it, it often doesn't change.
1: All right. And could you share a favorite book?
2: I would go back to probably thinking fast and slow. I mean, I think that's uh, from a, certainly from a nonfiction perspective, that would, be, that would be my number one. It's a big read, but really an incredible one.
1: And a favorite tool, something you used to be awesome at your job?
2: From the personal side, I've got family all over the world and friends all over the world, so I cannot live without WhatsApp. From a professional side, I mean, any good calendar app. Currently, it's Google Calendar, but that is another one that I can't live without.
1: All right. And a favorite habit?
2: It would probably be playing hockey. All right. So I play hockey every Monday night. Been doing it for years.
1: Awesome. Is there a key nugget you share with folks that really resonates with them? They quote back to you often?
2: So, yeah, I would say one, it's a, and this is more on the negotiation side than the influencing side, but it's negotiation is a process and not an event.
1: Okay. If folks want to learn more, get in touch. Where'd you point them?
2: So we're not as active as we should be on social, but we do have, you know, a bunch of LinkedIn, Twitter, all the usuals, but I would say probably the website, com, and feel free to, to reach out if you have any questions. And there's a, we've got a blog that's weekly that goes out there too and deals with, job related issues, plus things that you might do, buying a house, buying a car, lots of B2B stuff as well. That's our focus, but so feel free to reach out.
1: All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs?
2: I think the, for me, it'd be around having a process. I think one of the things that I've appreciated in this journey that I think when we go out and train and and coach folks, we often will learn as much as they do, just from the way people do it and get other best practices. But I would say the concept of having a process for persuading others, for often negotiation, communicating, has really increased my performance. And and I would say it's the thing that I'm so excited about. And so I would say I would challenge others to when it's easy to say I don't have the time or I'm just going to wing it to prepare and follow a process to do it. And you will definitely be more successful.
1: All right. This has been fun. I wish you much luck in all of your persuasions and negotiations.
2: Well, thank you for having me. I hope it's helpful to folks as they uh, do a great job with their jobs and hopefully this is helpful there.
1: But I love so much of what Andres had to say about the emotional piece associated with decisions being driven first by emotions and then which we later rationalize. And I'd heard that before and I thought, well, maybe I'm a different customer. I'm a different, special, unique flower But he set me straight, I think, when we dug into that iPad story that's really stuck with me. I thought about it again and again in terms of what's the emotion. And if desire isn't doing it, maybe pain is something that's irritating, frustrating, annoying, that you're sick and tired of, you're angry about. Maybe that's what's going on there. Again, the show notes, the transcripts, the links as we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep833. Hope to catch you next time and peace.